Hello, and welcome to the Anxiety Rx podcast, a show created by an anxiety specialist and neuroscientist, me, that offers unique, practical, and actionable advice to help you understand what anxiety truly is and exactly what you can do to empower yourself to resolve it. I'm your host, Dr. Russell Kennedy, an MD who suffered with crippling anxiety for 30-plus years, and traditional therapy from psychiatrists and psychologists really didn't help me feel better. And I also didn't like being on psych meds. In 2013, after burning out and leaving medical practice, I came to the conclusion that if I was ever going to heal my anxiety, I would have to do it myself. And that's exactly what I did, drawing from experiences with psychedelics and holistic healing and combining those modalities with my scientific academic background in medicine, neuroscience, and developmental psychology. Here on the Anxiety Arcs podcast, I offer a distinctly non-traditional and non-medical approach to understanding and healing anxiety. So despite the fact I'm trained as a physician, in no way is what I say and suggest to be construed as medical advice because none of the ways I use to resolve anxiety has anything to do with traditional allopathic medicine. From my own healing, I've created a distinctly non-traditional understanding and approach that helps thousands of people from all over the world understand and relieve their chronic anxiety. So if you're ready, let's get into today's episode. Hi, and welcome to the Anxiety Rx podcast. I'm so glad that you're here. Today, I'm going to talk with my friend Payam about psychedelics and how it plays a role in healing and how it's not a panacea. It's not for everybody. But before I do that, I want to go into a little bit of a background on why I do this, why I created MBRX, the online program, why I wrote the book, Anxiety Rx, and why I do this podcast is to give you information that actually helps you heal from anxiety rather than just coping with it. I think most traditional therapies are designed to help you cope as opposed to help you heal. And that's true with allopathic medicine in general, is that we usually give you medications to help you cope with your symptoms rather than actually heal them, when actually most of your symptoms are usually due to unresolved emotional stuff, typically from childhood, but not always. So I have a favor to ask you. If you feel like my work has helped you, I'm scoping out my second book right now. And if you could give me a good review for the first book, Anxiety Rx on Amazon, that would really help give me some power to go at publishers and really get a major publisher to take this on and spread the word in a very widespread way. Because I self-published Anxiety Rx. As of today, it sold 61,212 copies. But who's counting? I am, actually. And if you could give me a review, a nice review on there, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be words. You can just type in, well, type in five stars. That would be the, that would be the best. But if you can just give me a review for the book, I would really, really appreciate that. It really gives me some leverage to get with a major publisher. They're already recognizing that a book that sold 60,000 copies as a self-published is, is a winner already. But the more leverage I have with the publisher, the better. So I'm asking you for a favor. I'm asking you for some help. Could you go on Amazon, just type in Anxiety Rx or Russell Kennedy, and when Anxiety Rx comes up, just give me a good review for the book. That will help me create more content for you. And I really do want to help you with your anxiety. I want to help you to the point where you heal from anxiety as opposed to just cope with it. So 
let's get into today's episode. And thanks for listening to my little appeal. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Anxiety Rx podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Russ Kennedy, a medical doctor and neuroscientist who had anxiety, as you know, for many, many years. And I'm starting this phase of my podcast where I introduce people uh, to you that I have really benefited from and have really helped me. So today I have my friend Payam, who's a psychedelic-assisted uh, internal family systems kind of uh, practitioner. I think he works all over the world. We talk every once in a while, like he's in a different place in the world all the time. And and uh, I know personally the the value and gravitas of his work. So I'm just really happy to have him here. Payam, welcome. Russ, thank you. What a delight, finally. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. We've been talking about doing this for a long, long time. Because we, we met through, I think, the IFS, one of the IFS podcasts. Yeah. Like yeah. two years ago? Like how long has it been? Um, I, I'd say, yeah, probably two years ago or so because we talked about me speaking at a conference and you had given me a lot of right. advice. So that was, yeah, that was Yeah, that. yeah. yeah. So I know that you speak all over the world, you lecture physicians and, you know, people who aren't quite as left brained, you know, they're more, but I think we're starting to get into this place where we are really embracing, you know, psychedelics and different types of therapy, just because, you know, the talk therapy model, and we'll get into this, the talk therapy model just doesn't work for a lot of people. And what I love about your work is it really gets into that deeper subcortical, like I said, we'll get into all this stuff, that deeper sort of subcortical part that, that we get, you know, when we're children, this is the part of us that develops and we develop a framework on the world that isn't healthy for a lot of us. And to really change that program, we need to go deeper. And that's why I love your work. And that's why I love talking with you because we always, I hope we can keep this for an hour, but I have a feeling it's going to go I have a feeling it's just going to go. So, you know, people listen for as long as you like. I'm sure you'll get a lot out of it. So, so did, how do you want to start this, my friend? Like, how do you want to? Why don't we, why don't I sit, um, say a brief prayer uh, yeah, sure. and set, set a little bit of an intention for us in the audience and then we can get started. That's Sounds okay perfect. Okay, yeah. Great. Thank you so much. It's all yours. Beloved Mother Earth, Grandmother Moon, Father, Son, Sacred Spirit, the Spirit of Otak, the Spirit of Aya, the Spirit of the Fungi, the Spirit of the Heart, the Spirit of our teachers in body and out, the Spirit of our mothers and our fathers, our partners and our children. Thank you. We honor you. Thank you for nourishing our bodies so that we may nourish our minds knowledge and with the wisdom that you grant us thank you for all the healing and all the lessons thank you for this beautiful podcast thank you for this beautiful relationship thank you russ thank you for your friendship thank you for your wisdom thank you for your kindness I invoke between us and the audience an open mind and an open heart so that we can meet each other openly, lovingly, so that we can meet ourselves with compassion and understanding. In doing so, open ourselves up so that we can see light and darkness and feel love and pains and pain.
difference. Oh. Well, thanks for grounding us and centering us there. You know, I do notice that the medical doctor part of me starts going, oh, this is getting too woo for me, right? <laughs> and it's funny because it was like the, what's, really, what's really provided me with the most healing has not been my medical training or my yeah. practice as a medical doctor. It's been the psychedelics, even though they were generally a horrendous experience for me. <laughs> Right? Like it wasn't like I went in there and like, oh my God, I just saw myself and I saw my own death and I felt so at peace. None of that. It was horrible. Yeah. All of them. Yeah. Like LSD, ayahuasca. Uh, yeah. Microdosing was probably the tamest of psilocybin out of all of them. But it, it certainly led me to that place. And I, 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 we've talked about this before, about that, that LSD actually showed me that my anxiety was not in my head at all. It wasn't in my mind. Right. It was in my body. Yeah. So it was just learning like, okay, once I learned that, that it was more because I was given this information in 2013 when I was like suicidal and I had just left medicine and it was like, oh my God, what am I going to do with my life? Because so much of my identity was wrapped up in being a doctor. Yeah. And it, it just showed me like, okay, this actually is in your solar plexus. It's purple, it's hot, it's sharp, it presses up into your heart, it presses into your spine. So initially it was like, what the hell is this? And then I was at a conference, uh, an anxiety conference, which sounds like a bunch of anxious people hanging out. But it, was, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was an anxiety conference. Dr. Gordon Newfield, who's kind of my mentor in developmental psychology, he said this thing and he said, all anxiety is separation anxiety. Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh my God, okay, I, I guess. And then I've added onto that with my own sort of work. That's, and, and it's mostly separation from yourself. So yeah. what I think you do... Uh, and IFS is so great for is just is just connecting to that self energy, right? Like yeah. that that part of us that that is overridden by our childhood wounding that forces us down a path that doesn't allow us to sort of deviate from that path. Because if we do deviate from that path, the alarm goes up so high that we have to get back on that horrible path yeah. again because it's the only thing we've known. So that's what I think about, and we'll talk about these subcortical structures below the level of the cortex, below the level of the thinking mind. And that's where you heal, right? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you said a couple of things and I want to just kind of slow us down, which is this piece where you said, this is getting woo-woo, right? Right, yeah, and sure. It's, it's about kind of like opening ourselves up. And I know you are, but the, the listeners with my prayer even may be like, well, who is this guy and what is he saying? You know, and I think it's about us connecting to our essence. It's us about us opening ourselves to our essence, right? Opening our hearts, opening our hearts to one another and ourselves to unify that sep separation anxiety, as you mentioned, the separation from self or essential self, or when we talk about separation from source, you know, con the greater consciousness. And, and some may argue that, uh, we our first trauma is coming into consciousness and into mm -hmm. separation in that space and coming into birth and realizing that we are not the universe and that is that wisdom is that we are the universe you're the universe and so am i we're we're stardust just separated in in this avatars that we represent ourselves in but ultimately we are just one and that 
that unity that, that we all are inherently connected to. But, but because of these traumas that we experience, like you said, we disconnect and then we stay in our disconnection and in our distorted beliefs and, and, and the protectors, our defense mechanisms rise up, right? We, we, yeah. our personalities become our defense mechanisms. We identify, right? Just yeah. like you said, my doctor self, right? And we, yeah. we are that person. And then we realize, okay, well, this is who I'm going to be in as a means to protect myself and identify with all these personality structures that I've developed to help me stay in secure relationship with myself. But that secure relationship is really a distorted relationship. Yeah. I mean, we do become this reactive self, especially if we are traumatized as children. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've, I've counsel people all the time and I'm talking to this um, guy from Europe and I've been talking to him for about six months. And, you know, his, his thing was, I have to keep moving forward. I have to keep accomplishing. And he's very, very successful. You know, he's a sports figure and that he's very successful, but internally, you know, anxious and alarmed because he's still operating on that thing that I have to move forward, which is one of the, I work with him all the time. It's like, mm. you know, and ironically actually stopping and allowing yourself to move backwards. One of the things that I do with him is I get him to walk around the house backwards, you know, <laughs> just because he's so, he's so driven subconsciously to move forward. And, and he said, it's so hard. Like it's so mm. alarming. Right. Yeah. And then when you say, you know, moving back to your essence, it's, and I also say something like that, it's, Moving back to your innocence, seeing your yeah. seeing that authentic version of you that would have formed had you been sort of seen, heard, loved, and protected as a child. Yeah, you know, a lot of people that listen, um, who, a lot of people that I've talked to who get upset about the woo or get freaked out about the woo are the ones with the most childhood <laughs> wounding, right? Yeah. So it's it's just or, or the other one I see is like when I, I use the term inner child, which I don't use that much. I usually use younger self. But when mm -hmm. I use that, some people get really upset at that term. And mm -hmm. I find the people that get most upset are the ones, ironically, with the most inner child wounding. So yeah. getting getting back to your source and just sort of seeing that, you know, this illusion of ego, this illusion that we are separate beings is is really harmful. But by the same token, we need that illusion of separate being to drive consciousness into, because consciousness, I believe, not to get too woo right off the bat, but <laughs> it, it just tries, it tries to experience itself through us because consciousness yes. can't experience itself as itself. It needs yeah. humans, animals, whatever, to be able to experience itself. So we're all made differently. And I think, point, you yeah. know, if we're made differently in a way that we do experience trauma, and how do, how do we recover? How do we recover from that trauma? How do we move out of that subconscious drive to do what was quote unquote normal in our childhoods? Yeah, I, I think that um, to your point, Russ, um, noticing the population that you work with, noticing the population that I work with first and kind of acknowledging the group set that we are, um, we have the pleasure and the honor to work with um, I tend to work with uh, people that have tried conventional therapy uh, or have been referred by the therapist because they've reached the point where uh, the boundaries of um, the work of their therapists or psychiatrists has, have stopped. Yeah. And most of it is the, the um, somatic, the, the implicit, the deep stuff, right? So part the beginning of the healing process, I think for, for us, especially men, 
because I work with a quite a quite a big population of men is acknowledging, hey, I need help. <laughs> mm. Which you know? is hard for men. Yeah. Like we're trained yeah. not to do that. Yeah. So it's it's really like this work with men is so important because I think men are kind of under siege. You know, the pendulum has, you know, gone from, you know, men kind of dominating women yeah. to almost the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. And it's an interesting backlash. It's like men then trying to reclaim their masculinity by by overcompensating. But the the most beautiful people that I've encountered um, are in balance with their masculinity and their femininity, whether they're a male-bodied person or a female-bodied person. It's that unification of the qualities and characteristics that we all possess. And medicine work can, can start to attune us to the softening, which is a very feminine quality, especially for men who have hardened armored, right? <laughs> like this. Right. Um, armored as a means to protect somatically. And we can get into the, the child abuse stuff and the armoring of the body. Um, and and again, coming to a place of saying, okay, whether Russ show me the way or Pyam show me the way or YouTube both come in and, and help me come into unification and wholeness, right? Mm. Whereby we invite the qualities of the masculine and the feminine within us so that we all possess, we inherently all possess. It's, I think most men get, get disconnected and whether that's by a backlash because of what they've been acculturated to historically um, or backlash from, you know, the, as you mentioned, the pendulum swinging the other way, everything's out of disharmony, right? And, yeah. and finding that harmony. And, you know, I think dopamine's got a lot to do with that too, because we, you know, we are very dopamine driven as human beings. And unfortunately things like social media, our phones are pulling us along this pathway of, you know, unconsciousness. Just and and I think that's one of the reasons why our children are suffering so much is because they never really get to deal or learn how to acclimatize to negative emotion. Because as soon as they feel envy, anger, um, depression, sadness, they just go into their phones. So it's kind of yeah. like if if you want to learn how to play the guitar and there's a guitar sitting beside you, but there's also 500 books on reading or, or on playing the guitar, you could read those books forever and actually never actually learn how to play the guitar, which is basically sitting in that getting getting acclimatized and getting skilled at actually handling negative emotion, which is the reason I think why our society is going to this sort of, you know, snowflake kind of personality like that people can't um, tolerate negative emotion anymore, right? And it does affect your personality. It does, you know, it does make us, for me, it made me a people pleaser, a doctor, you know, someone who wanted to help. But really, I was just trying to help myself. Yeah. I mean, to your point, if, if you're if you're looking at the societal maladies that we are all attuned to, especially in the healing professions, the, the fact that the parents, for instance, are stressed, Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the work of, of our mutual friend, Gabor, right? right? Parents are stressed. They are um, stretched emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, financially, right? So that the matrix of society is has become individualistic. Those individuals within the family unit are stretched. They're not regulated emotionally, right? They're probably fueled by anger and exhaustion, so they don't have the capacity to be attentive to the kids in the way that 
would be necessary for them to um, acculturate themselves, acclimate to all these stressors, right? Yeah, and now especially we're also, the single parent, it's the single yeah. parent, you know, society. Now yeah. it's like they're not. You know, the men or the women aren't grounded enough. Like they're 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 in survival themselves. A lot yeah. of people will come to me and they say, "Can you work with my twelve year old son? Can you work with my fifteen year old daughter?" It's like, "Well, I'll work with you first because that's yeah. what they're that's what they're picking up on, right? That's yeah. what they're reading." I, exactly. I mean, it's it's about creating the, the the framework within the house whereby the the child feels seen, loved, and heard. And then they can mirror that and co-regulate with their parents. And this is not, not a fault of their pa- the parent. And we've, we've talked about the way we've been raised individually and your family history and mine. Right. And you and I have done quite a bit of medicine work and I've woken up. Uh, but if you consider our parents, for instance, they were just playing it out. So imagine most people just playing out their traumas. You know, right. and cultural traumas, family traumas, without even understanding the the, the 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 subconscious beliefs that they've taken on that are not even theirs. Yeah. Well, that's and why the we, society is in the place they're in now. Is because exactly. We're unconsciously. And it wasn't, you know, our parents' generation wasn't this sort of, you know, understanding. I mean, there was the 60s and hippies and all that. There was, there was the, the inklings of looking after yourself and finding your spiritual self or whatever. But there wasn't this this uh, this need at the time because you could basically float through life, you know, kind of raising kids in that environment. But now with social media and smartphones, we can't we can't sort of rest anymore. We have to be actively looking at how do I change my life because this is the only one you get. I mean, unless reincarnation. Of course. <laughs> That's the only one we're aware yeah. that we get at this moment. How's that? For now. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I would say kind of looking at going back to the alarm, Russ, and mm-hmm. factors that influence their alarm. I really, you know, you're talking about Gordon or, or, or Gabor in the book that, that they wrote, uh, Hold On To Your, to your Kids. Hold and, On To Your and, Kids, yeah. Yeah, and then de- developmental trauma that happens, right? And developmental trauma really begins at the point of conception. Mm. And again, we could get into woo, or we could look at it, you know, and through your lens, which I'd like to do, uh, is, you know, when the the uh, egg meets the sperm, how that conception, and then how the environment within the womb influences the child, whether it's the the environment that supports it being the mother, um, on a physical level, then then on a biological level, right, then on a societal level or familial, then a societal. If a woman is in distress. And I'd like you to touch on this because I think this sure. is a really important point. Is, yeah. is the hormonal levels that are completely shot, right? And how these misattunements physically, structurally influence the child and how that can implicitly form the mind in a particular way whereby they are born into this earth of trauma, of anxiety, right. yeah. then born into that family structure if the father and the mother are still around. And and the, the disordered family, and they could have, and I've worked with populations or people like this, where everything in their life, textbook is beautiful. They've got big house, mom yep. is a housekeeper, uh, you know, takes care of the kids. There's a housekeeper, father's a doctor, they're really well off. They have the perfect package. But this particular case that I worked with is anxiety, like you wouldn't believe it, Russ. Yeah. 
Yeah. Even 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 when I worked with with this person in in MDMA, it's which is supposed to soften the protectors. Mm-hmm. The protectors got freaked out that they were getting softened. Yeah. And 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 this particular client of mine was in anxiety in MDMA in high dose protocols. So it, it, I'd like you to touch on this because this is really remarkable. We could have this beautiful packaged life, but then there's something wrong or I'm not feeling at ease or I have a, a, an issue with drinking or there's sort of whatever compensations that people bring in to try to quell these anxieties. Um, yeah. And I think this could be a really good point. To, to yeah, and even on. before even before conception, you know, we bring in certain inherited family traumas as well. And my friend Mark Willin wrote this book called "It Didn't Start with You," which is just this amazing book on how how we transmit trauma, maybe through sperm, you know, maybe through um, chemicals that we're not aware of. We're transmitting yeah. trauma into our kids. And I was reading this study not that long ago that said. It's actually the mental stress of the father that's most predictive of the survival mode of the child, and which I thought, mm. well, that's really weird. But because typically women are much more attuned you know, to their, to their partners, if your man is really stressed, you're going to be really stressed. So if you're really stressed, but you know, you've got a, a male figure that can support you, that's helpful. But the, the male, the father being stressed was actually a, a stronger predictor of grow, you know, getting this survival physiology, this alarm physiology, than the mother being stressed, which is kind of counterintuitive. But when you think about it, it actually makes quite a bit of sense because, you know, we go into, we grow into this world in either survival mode or thriving mode, which is either sort of a reactive self or authentic self. Now, you know, there's always a gradation in there, and and some of us are just born more sensitive than others. So. You know, if you're born sensitive into a family that's loving, caring, attuned, and attached, you'll be fine. You know, but if you're sensitive and you've got trauma in your family, you know, that's kind of a, a sort of a recipe for just looking in the at the world with the eyes of survival. And then your personality develops based on that. You become a people pleaser or you become aggressive or whatever. Your personality will mirror your physiology. So, you know, and then if you're, say, you do very well by being uh, successful or, or working harder, that will become a pattern. And then when you're not working, then you go into alarm. And this is the thing, this is, I think, the hardest part of healing from anxiety is when you first start releasing that compulsive need to worry, you worry. That's chapter 62 in the book. It's like when, you, <laughs> when you're worried, you're worried when you're not worrying. Because yeah. it's so familiar, it's such a it's such a, a familiar state that human beings equate familiarity with security. And even if you're familiar with trauma, you will replicate that trauma. For me, it was chaos. You know, my dad would be fine for twelve to eighteen months and then go completely off the rails. So I learned that life was about chaos, and I would create chaos in my life. I've been married three times. You know, I, I would I look at how my ADD acts up. I look at how I unconsciously and automatically create chaos in my life. And now I, I can see it. So when, one of the things that I like to say is when you see it, you don't have to be it anymore. So it's just realizing. So when I get people feeling better, that feeling better, that feeling more calm, that less hypervigilant, people will often regress back into their anxiety because that's the crucible. That's, that's the point where you heal. And I think that's what psychedelics allow us to actually move into and move through because we lose that that 
that unconscious drive to pull us back to where we were before. We open up into a different area, psychedelics to some, to a lesser extent, MDMA, because MDMA, you're still kind of conscious all the way through. But it's just getting at those subcortical programs because that's where the anxiety lives. That's where, you know, that they affect your body and your body is how, is where life is, is where feeling is. And we get so used to as children, specifically of children of trauma, dissociating from our body because that's yeah. the only way we keep safe. And that's why people say, oh, my life is going by. It's like, well, you're not actually living in your body. You're living in your mind and there's no grounding in your mind. You, really great points, Russ, and I'd like to rewind because you made so many amazing points here. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to, yeah, I, should, I, I can see your face. Like, I want to say something. I want to say yeah, something. Well, I want to say, okay, okay, go. Yeah, but go. It's, I, should, I should make notes. Um, a couple of things. I think that distilling what you said, especially if you were talking to a population of male listeners, mm. just being open to the fact that, you know, your father may have intended really well, but he was stressed right? He had his own trauma. And most people don't even realize what the, the, the true essence of trauma or the meaning of trauma is. And they, they feel like, oh, they're weaker because they've been traumatized. It's really what we all experience one degree or another. But com- kind of coming to this understanding that I didn't choose to be this way. It's not a moral defect of mine to have anxiety or, or feel lesser than or feel like I need to compensate this these may be values or um, experiences that were interwoven into my DNA and my psyche before I I chose it and then going into living it out or playing it out and how these adaptations were interwoven into the nervous system the peripheral so we're we're talking about please or appease or fight or flight responses or, or freeze or fawn, you know, and, and there's a few that play out in our bodies and just recognizing how those factors really inform our existence. Mm. And then going into then the subcortical, the stuff that's underneath our conscious mind, right. And, and having a look at that and, and looking at the various medicines that can help us arrive there for us. Yeah, I think that one of the one of the things that I always say in my talks is just because the medicine is there doesn't mean that it's right for you. Mm-hmm. Which so, is a great point. Yeah, that, that's I, I wanted to point point this out. So as I'm speaking about medicines, I encourage people to uh, really research them, understand what they do. Maybe talk to your therapist or psychiatrist if they understand these sacred medicines that I work with, which if most you're, don't, which, which most, which most don't, they don't, they're starting to realize, you know, yeah. start like uh, ketamine is starting to be you, which isn't a true psychedelic. It's a dissociative, but, but it, they're starting to get into this thing. And I think the psychiatrists kind of know that just giving people medication for stuff. And I, and I'm very compassionate towards psychiatrists because typically they get the people with the, the, the deepest rooted traumas and problems. So, and they're not trained as med- we psychiatrists are basically medical doctors that do five years of residency in psychiatry after they finish their medical degree. And they're not trained in any of this stuff. In fact, they're trained in the opposite. They're trained in, okay, change your thoughts. We'll change, we'll change your neurochemistry yeah. and that will change your behavior. 
and they use behavior as as, as sort of a, a marker of how well they're doing. If someone's going psychotic on a regular basis while they medicate them, that kind of thing. And some people, you know, they do need medication. I'm not against medication on any level. But typically, you know, medical doctors were trained in this very reductionist, very scientific, very repeatable, and we kind of miss the spiritual aspect yeah. of healing because we're mind, body, and spirit. So, you know, psychiatrists are good at mind, and to some extent they know the body because they're medical doctors, but the spirit part, they're really, there's some, there's some that are great that kind of uh, embrace the spirit as well, but you can't heal fully I think until you you use all three, you know, until exactly. you, you know, understand. So I'm not saying that, that, and you're not saying either that psychedelics are going to heal you. They're just going to expose you to a different way of thinking that you may not have been able to see before because of your, your structures, your, your upbringing just won't allow you to do it. They won't allow yeah. you to see it. So once you see it, and that's one of the things with, with me with psychedelics, it took me like three years to, you know, to, to kind of come back to normal again after psych- psychedelics. So it's not like we're sitting here going, hey, this is the greatest thing in the world, and you make a great point. It's not for everybody. But it is something, and I think the, the other thing I want to tag onto that is I, I think people are getting the idea that, oh, you know, I've got all this trauma, I'll, I'll just do, uh, I'll microdose or I'll do, uh, I'll go on an ayahuasca retreat or whatever and I'll come back healed. <laughs> and there's a lot of people that come back worse if you don't get the right practitioner that, that and it doesn't mean they're not a good practitioner, they just not, may not be the right practitioner for you, which is what I love about your work is how you screen people and you go like, I may not be for you. This is one of the things I really love about you is just that, you know, this isn't, you, you don't look at this like this worked for me, thank you Lord, I'm hailed. Um, and it'll work for everybody, which is one of the things that the openness is what I really enjoy about our conversations. I really enjoy about you as a, a practitioner is just your openness that like, oh yeah, okay, well that didn't work out. Let's look at something else. So yeah. it's really understanding that, that medical doctors don't really understand it. Um, and they also try and take the medicine and, and reduce it into a, <laughs> into a scientific way, yeah. you know, because that's the, that's the model that they were trained in. So I can't blame them for that. Um, but it's just like, it's, it's so much more spirit. Healing has just so much more spirit than just coping. Well, like as, as you spoke so eloquently, I think that Most of the physicians that I interface with, uh, most of the therapists that I interface with, um, people who have sat with me who are in the field, we talk about symptom management. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I use this metaphor. I say, well, if your arm gets chopped off and you're bleeding out, how much doesn't matter if you pour gallons of ayahuasca, you're going to bleed out. And that's the end of right. the situation you're, you're done for. So there's certainly symptom management that needs to be addressed medically, but on a psychological level, I think that a lot of people really have these compensatory behaviors that manifest that are really rooted in trauma. Mm -hmm. There's of course, and and this is the challenge, which is, uh, is it a dopamine deficiency or is there an excess of dopamine is there something with serotonin that's going on is that uh, something that has to do with your gi is that a thyroid matter right and these could be elements that could be throwing your system off balance or is it a, a behavioral is it stress is it stress that really 
screwed up your system and your GI system then influence your mind. So it's this piece of like, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Yes. Number one. Yeah. Um, some people, as you said, need the psychotropic interventions. And I think that um, for most, that's helpful. And if one feels that working with a psychotropic helps them function and operate and that's where they want to be in life, that's okay. That's entirely up to them. And that's their choice. What do you mean by psychotropic? Uh, um, SSRIs, SNRIs. Okay, medication. Medication. Yeah, okay. Um, Sorry. Um, no, no, it's, 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 it's good. It's, it's good. I, I, I know, but it's, it's good for my listeners okay, to right. know, cause I'm sure yeah, a thanks. lot of them are thinking, what the hell is yeah. a psychotropic? So, so, so a yeah. pharmaceutical, um, yep. prescription intervention. intervention. Yep. Um, and I'll talk to, to, to you and the audience about my personal experience without sure. going to gruesome detail. I've had the worst. No, problem. go to gruesome detail. <laughs> let's, let's have the, let's have the down and dirty stuff. Fine. Let's go for it. <laughs> That's what my that's what my listeners want to hear, baby. Well, want to hear I, the dirt. Yeah, sure. I I I had the worst uh, childhood trauma one could imagine, physically. Mm, I know. Yeah. So, and then I grew up in a war zone, and so I there was displacement, and I was a political refugee. So there was there was a lot of of displacement and not feeling belong, a lot of bullying, a lot of physical assault, and so my life was pretty much from from the age of two where. The, the second memory that I had was that my dad was whipping me with, with a, a whip at the age mm. of two without getting into the reasons why. Um, that was my second memory. And my entire life, anxiety and depression, that's, that's, that, that was just kind of the fundamental baseline of what I experienced. And with the compassion that I can feel towards the therapist who really didn't do anything for me. And the psychiatrist that I did see who medicated me, there was no, there was not even an intake for us of, let's talk about your ACE score. Really? No, it was, there was like, he was just kind of, kind of looking at my family. I was like, okay, they, they're on Prozac and this and that. And why don't we try a little bit of Wellbutrin? And, and it did help initially. Yeah. But then when I came off of it, the underlying cause of it was still inside of me, symptom management, but then the root, the root cause was never healed um, until I got into working with, with psychedelics and some, did some su- significant work around uh, my, my own personal traumas, which then obviously informed why um, I decided to embark on this journey as a facilitator. Right. But the, the symptoms need to be managed. Sometimes I work with people who have had symptom management through pharmaceuticals and then they, uh, uh, their psychiatrist refers them to me. We titrate off of the medicine and make sure that they're regulated. I have a team on my, on, on my staff um, that through different modalities helps them regulate. And then we go in to uproot the, the source and there's different medicines to do that and different ways to look at the, the root cause and, and unburden ourselves energetically, emotionally, and then go on living a better, more fruitful life. And how did but, that work with you, though? Like, how did that work? Like, how did psychedelics kind of help you deal with that horrendous abuse and that sort of stuff sure. that you went through? Yeah. Without them naming the medicine that I worked with, because it's very sacred medicine, it's also very powerful and it needs to be okay. respected. And, and the facilitators who are serving this medicine need to be of integrity. Um, I took this medicine and 
very, very rapidly, I had this big somatic release of all of this repressed trauma somatically, energetically that was in my body. And through that, it was like the puzzles of my life. I use this metaphor of of imagine your life as a a puzzle uh, and you see the clear picture of it in your common consensus reality. Now, my life was a puzzle and it was flipped upside down and scattered into a million pieces. And I, there were some pieces that were facing up that I could remember, but mm-hmm. the medicine, what it did, it, it, it consolidated everything, flipped everything in the right direction and flipped it up and said, here you go. This is your problem. So um, what did it say? Like, what did it say to you? Like, well, uh, let me what did it show about, you? I guess is basically, yeah, I, I, I would say that it showed me my trauma. Okay. And it was very, very unpleasant to look at it because it was mm-hmm. repressed, because it was so severe. Um, I worked with this medicine quite a bit until I was able to express the trauma imprints energetically and then work with the memories and reconsolidate and, un- and sort of unburden these, these beliefs, these implicit beliefs that I had taken on from the age of, of two. And remember, these things become our personality or personality structures, right? So then working with a new paradigm in the paradigm shift to realize that I am no longer who I thought I was. That was version 1.0. And then then working with the updated system as to how to relate with the world and the stimuli of the world with the new paradigm that I'm in without being informed by the trauma that I experienced and lived out. That was quite a sentence, that one. <laughs> that was quite a sentence. Yeah. So, so how, so, uh, yeah, I just, like, th- this is, this fascinates me. So that's why I just sort of slow down a little. So, how did your life change? Like, how did you perceive yourself? How did you perceive that traumatized child? Mm-hmm. Like, what, what, like, consciously and unconsciously, like, you and I have talked before about the cortical and the subcortical, right? So, there's the cortical part of our brain, prefrontal cortex, all that kind of stuff that rationally understands as much as we can understand about life and the world. And then there's the subcortical parts, you know, uh, the amygdala, the brainstem, pons, medulla, that kind of stuff. None of those subcortical structures understand human language, the words. They, their, their language is feeling. So the language of feeling, which is the language of the body. So it's like, how different was your body after this medicine? Is that, I guess what I'm asking. Yeah. So you, you asked a very big question. So I'm trying to distill it. And <laughs> I know. And, and, um, explain it's, it in a way it's hard to put these things in a word it's, it's big it's it's this uh, ineffable experience when you're working with sacred medicine totally. so it's, it's hard totally. for me to so let me let me explain it maybe in a r- circular fashion so sure okay so being reduced to what what one would implicitly understand as being worthy than less than an animal because that's the way I was treated. Okay. Okay. So, um, learned helplessness that you know about. So I was Mm -hmm. learned helplessness. I was, um, please and appease. That was my, um, trauma response and, and freeze. So freeze, please and appease. That was kind of like, I know you don't fight and flight. I mean, it's had a whole bunch of things going on. 
<laughs> um, yeah. at, at different times. Um, and understanding, and I'm making this really short for us, yeah, no, but, but understanding how my body, and I use this in my work where I say the, the body is a satellite dish of, of receiving the experience of life. Mm. Right. So 80% of our information is bottom up. Yeah. So tuning to what my body was communicating to me as threat, real or imagined, and understanding that um, I was in these trauma responses to the external world without being conscious of what those trauma responses were. I was in the feeling of it without the thinking of it of, is this truly a threat? And what is my response to this real threat or imagined threat? And as you and I have talked, we live in a society that's pretty easygoing and, and there's no bombs falling. We're not in famine. Everything's yeah. pretty copacetic. But these are these very nuanced, subtle, subliminal signals that are sent into our nervous system and into our satellite. And we pick those things up. So then understanding what my body is trying to communicate to me. Is this truly a threat? How do I address the threat? Um, was really the big learning lesson for me is, is attunement to the wisdom that's within and working with my inner parts to regulate them and then to address their concerns. This is IFS stuff. So that, yeah. that's kind of in short, did that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, when we use terms like bottom up and top down, you know, um, just for people that may not be familiar with those terms, top down is basically how we cognitively, how our our thinking mind kind of explains things to us. Okay, well, I was physically abused as a child. That was wrong. Uh, you know, I, I connect with myself now. Now, bottom up is basically how your body feels, which is kind of, again, not using language. Like, how does your body feel? If it feels alarmed, this process called interoception, where your mind, which is just a, your mind is a meaning-making make sense machine, it reads your body all the time. So if there is this, what I call from my book, background alarm, if this this alarm from your childhood is still sitting in there, your mind will read that alarm and it will start making up worries, start making up you know warnings, what ifs, worst case scenarios in your mind that are completely consistent with how your body feels. Even if you're not aware of how your body feels, especially if you're not aware of how your body feels, especially if you're not aware of how your body feels, because what we do in the society is when we feel bad, we don't even we don't even acknowledge our body. We go into our heads and we start to worry and we start to try to make sense of things using our minds, which are which is not it's it's a circular thing. We will never be able to explain this existence with our minds, but it doesn't stop our minds from from convincing us that we can't. So it's understanding like how do you get in touch with these sensations from your body. And I tell people this all the time. It's like, I'm not showing you how to get rid of your anxiety. What I will show you is where that anxiety lives in your body as alarm and how you can adopt and adapt and acclimatize to that, that alarm sensation so it doesn't automatically and compulsively and reflexively send you into your mind because your mind doesn't have more of the problem. You can't solve a problem of anxiety which essentially is a problem of overthinking and rumination with more thinking and rumination, but your mind will tell you that it can't. 
So this is why we get sucked into our heads and we get out of our bodies. And what I love about psychedelic work and to some extent IFS work and, and especially somatic experiencing is we're like, what is actually going on? Can we direct our attention to this sensation in our body? And you and I have talked about the insular cortex and that kind of thing in the brain before and how the, the anterior insula, which is part of our brain that's very deep inside of our brain, and it's kind of like the modulator between top down and bottom up. So the insula kind of translates the mind's thoughts into the body's feelings and the body's feelings into the mind's thoughts. And what I believe happens, and this is only my theory, is that when we're younger and we experience a trauma that's too much to us to bear, our insula creates that sensation in our body. And when we go through something similar today, you know, we may think, oh, it's, it's my wife's driving my, me crazy or my kids are driving me crazy. It's actually a state in your body that was created when you were probably quite young. You're feeling exactly the same way now in your body that you did back then. But unless you actually go in and feel that state and allow that state and just sort of swim in that state for a while, you never change it, which is what I was saying earlier about playing the guitar. You can read all the books you want on how to heal. You can do all the therapy that you want on how to heal at the cognitive cortical level. But until you actually start to go into the feeling, go into the cortical level, which is what psychedelics really helped me do, I, I wasn't able to change any of those things. And, and once you change the feeling in your body, your mind changes. And in the society, we, we're, we're sort of spoon-fed this thing, like change your mind and your body and your anxiety will go away. It's like, yes, that's helpful. CBT, ACT, all that stuff is helpful. But unless you have the grounding in your body, there's nowhere for that uh, CBT stuff. There's nowhere for that psychotherapy to root and to ground and to, to actually change your life. And this is what happened with me was once I did the psychedelics, all, this, all the cognitive work that I did for 25 years so all of a sudden had a place to root and make sense. Oh, that's why I'm like, that's why I'm a people pleaser. That's why I do that. And it's like, and then you can kind of allow this sort of feeling in your body to exist. And then on top of everything else, because I know I'm going on here, that alarm in your body is your younger self. That is the younger version of you. Mm. So if you can accept, feel, love that alarm, which is counterintuitive, which is the reason why we have so much anxiety is we actually push that alarm away. We push that child away. And I think what the psychedelics do and what IFS does and NSE does to some extent is it says, okay, this is part of your younger self. This is part of your trauma. And can you acclimatize to this? Can you see it, hear it, love it, and protect it as your younger self? And that's how you heal. It's very difficult to do that consciously, though, because everything in your conscious mind will tell you to avoid that trauma. Now, I, well, I went on there, but that's yeah. basically, yeah. I think that the the point that we want to both focus on um, in this segment of what you talked about is connecting to the the feeling of it and fully comprehending what that means. Now, mm. MDMA it works um, on oxytocin and serotonin and dopamine primarily; those those three yep. are transmitters, and it allows us beautifully. And this is in a an ideal scenario. MDMA yep. can do and elicit many different responses, yep. um, but it allows us to soften up our protective parts and allow us to be in ourselves really as an anxiolytic and an uh, analgesic, softening the body. So people who have 
medical trauma or, or physical trauma, their bodies get armored, muscles get tight, everything gets calcified, and we just kind of walk in a particular way. Or if we're holding certain emotions in our bodies and those areas get tight or distorted or distended, we physically and structurally become rigid. rigid. So what is beautiful about MDMA is allows us to soften up and allows us to soften up and, and be in a place of love and compassion softly and softly and un, be in a state of a safety within ourselves because that may be actually quite unusual for some people because they haven't oh, really yeah. ever fully experienced that. And MDMA, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. MDMA was one of the, the most self-loving experiences I've ever had. Yeah, yeah. Gabor was in his in his book, um, um, Hungry Ghosts, he's talking about when he had talked about what it's like with one of his patients to use heroin. And this patient had, had said, it feels like I'm being wrapped up in my mother's blanket and given a hot cup of chicken soup. And that's that sense of finally falling in and feeling a sense of safety. Okay. And people who are addicted, they've had trauma. Yeah. Most, if not all, uh, you don't choose to be addicted. So it's a compensation and they're just trying to compensate to find a, find a balance and balance their nervous system. That's completely shot. And, and, and there is no window of tolerance, right? The window of tolerance yeah. is very, very small. So, MDMA is certainly not heroin, but just using that as a <laughs> using that. It's as one a, of the few chemicals, though, that fires up serotonin and dopamine. Yeah. Like usually, usually it's a teeter totter. Usually, serotonin goes up, dopamine drops. Usually, dopamine goes up, serotonin drops. So, so it is one of those things that that it's a very unique experience, yeah. to say the least. Yeah. So you're able to be with yourself, and in the relational, uh, therapeutic or or shamanic. Um, ceremonial, depending on the level of expertise of, of your practitioner or your therapist, then you can start to un unwind and unfold and start to look at things. And and what I think is really beautiful with that can be beautiful with MDMA is once you are able to fall into a state of essential self where your parts, your manager parts, these defense mechanisms really soften, you get to meet yourself anew. Mm-hmm. And when, when you're in the state of being and you and pausing and there's, there's more breath between your thoughts, there's more breath literally between your lungs and you're able to come in, then you're able to start to notice the impressions of things that you may have been, you have pushed away. And MDMA doesn't necessarily get into the subconscious or the repressed. That's one thing it doesn't do. So MDMA is a good medicine to use with material that is in your conscious mind hmm. that has been pushed out of, of the field of purview. But you can slowly start to notice the impressions and, and the, the, the traumas that you experience and then work with, with those traumas or understand where you may be holding those things. And going back to what you're saying, your responses and where they went into your body, what your interpretations were of those and slowly uncovering this material. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I say quite frequently is that basically anxiety is a direct result of you blocking love. Yeah. And specifically blocking love for yourself because I think when we have trauma that's too much for our little minds to bear when we're children, 
Unfortunately, the way we're wired as human children is that we take that trauma on ourselves and we can't blame our parents. So what we have to do is, you know, find a reason because the mind needs a reason. So it blames us. So we start this thing that I call jabs, this judgment, abandonment, blame, and shame, jabs of ourselves. And that becomes the inner critic. And then that's what separates us. So all anxiety is separation anxiety. So when we judge, abandon, blame, and shame ourselves as children, we're creating this alarm in our system. And because that alarm becomes so familiar to us as children, because whatever is familiar to you as a child, you will unconsciously replicate in your ad, in your adulthood. So it's one of those things that we automatically, this is what I was saying, I've been married three times, we just automatically create this. And that's why I say to everybody, it's like, what, what was normal for you in childhood? What was the pattern? And how are you reproducing that same pattern in your adulthood? Even though you say, you know, women will say, oh, you know, every man I get is like, he doesn't treat me well or whatever. It's like, well, you know, did your dad treat you well? It's like, well, no. It's like, well, you are actually reproducing that same thing. And then we create this energy, I believe, that attracts these people to us as well. So, you know, one of the things that I like saying is like, sometimes your soulmate who you think is your soulmate can actually become your cellmate because it is one of those things that we're attracted to the same dysfunction that we had as children. And it's being, unless you can see it and acclimatize to it and be compassionate to that part of you that wants to gravitate towards that, you will unconsciously keep doing it. So when you do something, when you, when you really accept that love and with me, because my dad was so wonderful so much of the time and so strange and, uh, and unconnectable at other points, I learned that love wasn't safe. That's, what I, that's the program that I kind of learned. So if, if there is only love and fear in the universe. So if you can't trust love, your psyche, your system will get filled up with fear. And that's exactly what happens. So when, you, when we're talking about MDMA, when you're like, Oh, this when I was on MDMA, it was like I just love I couldn't worry. I actually was in my brain going, okay, worry about something. Like what's something that I always worry about? Well, health health anxiety used to be a huge thing for me. So it's like worry about your health. And I'd worry about my health and I'd be like, ah, I would laugh at myself, like, ah, that's nothing to worry about. Right? So it was just the 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 self-reflection of not being able to worry or have that worry typically because the worry gave me some sense of traction in the world because it was so familiar to me. Now I didn't have that worry, but I didn't mind not having the worry. That's the first time. I didn't feel uncomfortable not worrying. So it was like, that's what MDMA kind of did for me. And it showed me the other side, like the sixth sense, when you know that, that, that Bruce Willis is dead the whole way through the movie. Um, sorry to spoil that movie for you, but it's 25 years old. Then it kind of, when you see the other side and you know it's accessible, at least, even under the influence, and this is where I think addiction comes in as well, is addiction allows us to actually love ourselves. When you get that warm heroin blanket or whatever it is, you can actually drop that, that guarding, that blocking of love for yourself because all anxiety is separation anxiety and it results from you blocking love for yourself. So these, these psychedelics, MDMA, that sort of stuff allows you to see, you know what, I really actually deep down do love myself. It is in there. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah, I, I, beautiful point, Russ. It's going back to version 1.0 pre-medicine and going to version 2.0 in or post-medicine. 
the capacity to witness yourself out, out, outside of this paradox that you had lived out is the gateway to realizing, oh man, there's another way to be. Now, of course, I definitely don't suggest them being working with MDMA as a, as a habit. It's, there are right. dangers with it <laughs> or, or sure. any psychedelic. Um, Absolutely. Or without a guide. <laughs> yeah, and definitely not without a guide. But um, understanding what what capacity lies within you that's inherent to you, that lives within you. Mm-hmm. Medicines, these medicines show us that's what, what's inherent within us. There's nothing that it gives us that we don't already possess. Totally. It just, it's, a, it's a beautiful reminder of, oh, I can exist in this fa- fashion. How can I, once I get the reminder or the memo that I can, how can I step out outside of this space and then continue on working to maintain this version 2.0-ness of me. Now, I'm going to backtrack to address a few things that you said. The, the trouble and challenge of version 2.0, Russ, is if we've acculturated ourselves to a particular matrix and, and infused that ourselves within that matrix so that, as that matrix has infused itself in us, and I'm not talking about the, the woo-woo matrix, but the jobs we take, the relationships yeah. that we're in, the marriages, and they've, they've all um, attracted themselves to us as, um, as the version 1.0 that we were, mm-hmm. right? Going back to um, why do I attract the same man? And it goes back to, well, what is it about me? And we are, and to your point, we are, comfortable in our discomfort that's where we that's what we know that's all we know and then breaking free of that discomfort and realizing what's possible within us and and whether it's relational and going back to relationships i find myself consistently in these relationships i i I think that if we examine that on a deeper level it's also us trying to redeem these ruptured relationships in our um younger years yes where we had to um, forgo our own authenticity for the need for attachment. You know, we're talking about authenticity versus attachment. So we had to deny ourselves of our essential self, our needs for the attachment figures, ideally the mother and the father who were, who were diseased in, in of themselves. And we take taking on those diseases and, and these personality structures that develop and subconsciously us trying to redeem ourselves and repair and restore those initial uh, relational traumas that we may have experienced. And a lot of this is subconscious. And until we get into deep medicine space and realize how we've been complicit in our own dis- disorder and dysfunction, can we then step outside of it? Yeah, I think these medicines give us a chance for a do-over, just to yeah. put it in like childlike terms. It's like we get a do-over. And you know, a lot of how I help people heal from anxiety is going back and see, hear, love, and protect that younger version of you. Because, you know, anxiety fundamentally is a mind-body disconnect as well as an adult self-child self disconnect, which creates a lot of alarm. And it's the alarm in the body that creates all these thoughts of the mind. Like I said, your, your mind is just reflecting what's going on in your body. So when we understand that, that if we can actually start to have compassion for not only ourselves, but for that child, because here's the thing, like, we as adults, we don't want to go back to that child because that child holds all our pain. 
And the child doesn't trust the adult in us because we've been around them for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years and we haven't connected with them because it's too painful. So it's really, like you said, we're not, the medicine doesn't give you anything you don't already have, but there's so many blocks to loving yourself. There's so much jab, there's so many jabs in there that started when you were younger that you can't actually see the love for yourself because that protective program is just overriding everything. And this is one of the reasons, again, is why people get addicted because, you know, when you take an opiate or heroin or whatever, you actually feel that love for yourself. And, but that's what you're trying to get back to over and over and over again, because the, the medicine, uh, actually I should rephrase that the morphine allows you to actually have that feeling of connection that you won't allow yourself when you're not on some sort of medication. So it's really, can you see the other side? Can you see that part of you? Can, can you embrace that younger version of you? Cause that's how you heal in the long term. You know, there's a lot of therapies out there, cognitive therapy, helping you understand, okay, yeah, I, you know, I know I'm anxious because I was abused, abandoned, neglected, whatever, when I was a child, but you're not a child anymore. You actually have a lot more agency than what you believe you are. And this is part of where the amygdala comes in. The amygdala has no sense of time. So it just records like you at two years old, it records you being hit at two years old. And anything that's even remotely reminiscent of that will fire your whole body into fight or flight, which will, of course, affect your thoughts, your thought processes, which will, of course, affect your body. And then you get in this alarm anxiety cycle that I talk about in the book. And I think one of the things that the medicine does is it allows you to break that cycle. You can actually stay in the feeling without compulsively hooking it onto thoughts and getting sucked into that cycle. Yeah, I, exactly, Russ. And I, I think that different medicines also function differently. I think that the yeah. MDMA is a really beautiful beginning medicine to work with. Ketamine, I also find to be very, very powerful in the way we can address certain things. Um, we, if we get into some other medicines that we haven't discussed, but psilocybin, I, I kind of talk about it as like a rewirer. It's like okay. an electrician. So uh, we have these wirings that are, are cemented and calcified and just kind of locked into each other and with the right skillful facilitator and the right medicine within the realm of psilocybin and the right dosage, we are able to untangle the wires and, and it's just, it's really a really remarkable experience of noticing and feeling in that space where the mind just opens opens and and it, it it's almost like the 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 pathways of um the ski slope you know they use this metaphor quite a bit yep. in the psychedelic world it seems like um the snow has created entropy which is a beautiful mm-hmm. place to be um and then the snow falls and and things are just open and through work in the ceremony or in the therapeutic context less so um, and then thereafter is is rewiring in the right pathways so that we have a different experience and a, a different relationship that we may not have, have had in the version 1.0 world of us. Yeah, and I think that that's a very valuable thing that we, there's there's limitations to actually how much the conscious mind can change the unconscious programming. 
right? And I think that we worship the mind in the society so much, we believe that as long as we think better, if we think better, we'll be able to overcome these subcortical, unconscious, deep-rooted programs. And we don't. It helps. It actually helps. It's kind of like the icing on the cake, but the cake itself is actually feeling secure somatically, like being in your body, being alarmed and being okay at the same time. Like I'm alarmed and it's like, okay, can I sit here with this alarm rather than compulsively going into my head? Can I just acclimatize to it? Because basically, again, that's the child. So if if you reject the child, if you go into your head and you worry, you're basically pushing that child away. And if you push a child away, they'll do one of two things. One is they'll freeze. So your body will go into freeze or they'll go into deeper and deeper alarm, higher, higher sympathetic activity. So fight or flight activity, which isn't good either. But if you can learn how to acclimatize to that feeling of alarm and just know and stay present, it's like, okay, then you actually learn how to play the guitar. Then you Hmm. learn it's uncomfortable. You know, you hit some bad chords, you hit some wrong strings, that sort of thing. But you learn over time that, oh, okay, well, this vibration actually starts to feel good after a while in, in a very you know, strange way is it starts to feel more comfortable. And then when you start being more comfortable with discomfort, as you say earlier on, then that's the gateway to healing. But if you run away from, and this is where I think our children are suffering so much is because every time they feel anything negative, they run away from it and we give them opportunities to run away from it because we don't we don't want them to feel pain because we as adults don't want to feel pain and when we see our kids suffer we don't want to suffer so we want to get them out of it as soon as possible but we have to show them that it's okay to actually endure boredom endure envy endure disappointment because if every time you feel those negative emotions you jump on your phone when you get some real problems that you can't you know just distract away from they collapse and that's what our society is doing. So, so is there anything, you know, before we got to wrap up here because we're at the, you know, hour and five mark already and I could talk to you for days. (laughs) So, so it's one of those things. So, but is there anything that we haven't kind of talked about, like your philosophy of healing, how you kind of healed that kind of thing and, and why you do this work? Yeah. Well, to wrap things up, as, as you said, we could talk for days. Uh, I think that, the genesis of my work, and I think um, the work of many facilitators of integrity is to help people come into wholeness. Mm. That is really just the essence of, of healing, whether it's inner wholeness and then by, by virtue of the external wholeness that we all desperately are seeking. And that's, that's my mission. And that's what I, I'm, I'm, really on this planet to, to do and and to help people recover from intergenerational trauma and really undo their trauma so they don't, they don't pass it on to their children so that the generations ahead of me who I'll never meet will be free from pain and suffering and so that's the essence the essence of my work and and just as our relationship has developed the essence of interfacing with people physicians doctors therapists psychiatrists including you who get who get it yeah who get it who are who are who have stepped outside of the matrix of their doctorness 
and said, okay, well, there's other stuff and there's other modalities and I may not be equipped to address this, these particular symptoms as effectively as someone else. And whether it's working with a psychedelic practitioner such as me or other modalities, whether it's, it's herbalism, nutrition, acupuncture, chiropractic, it's really bringing the village, the, the, the elders, the wise men and women who are in the healing profession and open up the dialogue just as you and I are dialoguing of, okay, Russ, what do you know? And this is what I know. And we got this patient, this mutual client of ours, and we've run into these issues. And what do you think we should do before we take them to ceremony or, or vice versa? And, and that's really the essence of, of healing is bringing the community of, of wisdom with an open, open heart and open mind and sharing so that we're all free from suffering. And that's, that's what I'm so delighted to, to speak with you and have the platform. So thank yeah. you. Thank you for that, Russ. Oh, you're welcome. You know, it's like that at the old Buddhist saying, you know, pain is unavoidable, but suffering is optional. So pain, the alarm in our system, it's unavoidable for sure. But the suffering is basically adding all these negative thoughts and these negative judgments, abandonments, blames and shames of ourselves. Like that's, that's what causes the pain. You know, David Hawkins uh, is one of my favorite authors and he writes about how he uh, cut his thumb in a bandsaw. And I guess he has some allergy to anesthetics or something like that. And he said, you know, when I, when I just sat there with the, with the pain, it was okay. You know, it wasn't comfortable, but it was okay. But when I saw, started thinking, oh, you know, this is the worst thing. Uh, is, is the bleeding ever going to stop? That's where the suffering comes in. And I think that unfortunately, as human beings, we're kind of wired to suffer in a way and create those the, the meaning of our trauma that actually really isn't helpful. It's, it's something that takes us deeper into the trauma rather than leading us out of the cave. And I think, you know, practitioners like you and to some extent like me, I'm still got my, my foot kind of more in the traditional realm as well. Like I don't have a problem with medications at all. And I know you don't either. It is one of those things that I think that whatever your introduction to wholeness is, and sometimes medication can even be an introduction to wholeness, um, as well as, you know, chiropractic and uh, aromatherapy and all that kind of stuff. But just getting into that and seeing that there is another uh, modality of healing other than traditional allopathic sources. Because, you know, if medicine... (laughs) If psychiatry would have healed us, they would have healed us by now. And if we could change the if we could change the unconscious programming with our conscious thinking, psychotherapy would last about twelve minutes because you just like don't do that. <laughs> and it doesn't work that way, right? There's a great Bob Newhart thing out there about stop it. If you ever if you ever got on YouTube, it's like this woman comes in and says, "I'm I'm afraid about being buried alive in a box." And Bob Newhart's the therapist, and he goes, "Well, stop that. Just stop it, right?" And it's very funny. Um, and if that was the case, we, 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 okay, but we have these unconscious programming, um, that, that runs our lives if we let it. And we do have a lot of conscious control over things that we don't believe that we do. One of them is staying with the pain, which is counterintuitive, but it's actually the only way to heal. And other therapies, you know, psychedelics being one of them is allows us the opportunity that we won't give ourselves, I think. You know, we're so blocked. We were so blocked towards love, especially if we have trauma as, ch- as children, that we we are very suspicious of love in a lot of ways. And I think what the medicine does is it says, okay, this is your essence. This is what you're going to go back to when you're dead, 
right? This is this is basically the big joke because uh, in India, you know, Yama is the god of of death, and Yama is a joker. He's a clown, right? So it's like there's this there's this idea that the death is a big joke. You know, we, we're all so worried as, as human beings, like, oh my god, this is the worst thing ever, and and of course, it's the ultimate separation in a way. But it's really the ultimate source of our healing as well. It's just being able to accept pain, being able to accept death and embrace it rather than running away from it. So how do people find you? Yeah, the, uh, people can visit my site, um, payam.com. P-A-Y-A-M. dot com. Yeah. yeah, thanks. I'm not on social media. Uh, but yeah, uh, they can visit I wish I wasn't. <laughs> I wish I wasn't. It's just such a huge source of anxiety for me. But yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's P-A-Y-A-M dot yeah, so, com, right? So you can, yeah, you can visit me there. There's a lot of um, resources, uh, a lot of lectures and podcasts that I've given there, along with the, the schools of thought that have informed me. So I have a lot of articles there. Should people be interested in the modalities that I incorporate into my work with working with psychedelics? And also articles about working with psychedelics and various psychedelics. So I invite people to visit me there. And if you're interested in having me as a guest or as a, as a speaker, I'm happy to have that conversation with you. Um, it's a great delight, Russ. I'm really glad that we got to do this. It was a beautiful talk. Yeah, it's it's been in the works for a long time, my friend. And, and we'll do it again. So thank you so much again. And, you know... This has been the Anxiety Rx podcast with my guest Payam, P-A-Y-A-M, Payam.com. If you want to find him, that's the place to find him. And always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Likewise. Bye for now. Bye.